Y'all are doing great enduring the heat. Uh, if you do, in the course of the sermon, need to stand nearer to a window uh, or get water, please uh, do feel free to do that. Uh, this morning, we're thinking about the forgiveness of sins, and I trust and hope that you will forgive the sin of not having the AC working this morning. Um, Psalm 32, verse 1 says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? Perhaps this is one of the most uh, radical of Christian doctrines. We certainly all believe in the forgiveness of our sins because intuitively, instinctively, we all want to be forgiven. But do we believe in the forgiveness of other people's sins? Accepting the final rejection of God through the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit Do you believe in the forgiveness of all kinds of sins, that all sins can be forgiven? Sins like murder, adultery, racism, abuse, and sins that seem too heinous to name in polite company. Do you internally or perhaps subconsciously put a limit on the kinds of sins that can be forgiven? I mean, you've heard somebody say, I'll never forgive him for that particular sin. Uh, Do you internally or perhaps subconsciously put a limit on the number of sins that can be forgiven? I mean, perhaps you've heard somebody say, I've forgiven him now for the last time. No more after this. What does it mean to be forgiven? What does it mean to forgive? Well, this is what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning from God's Word and working our way through our occasional doctrinal series in the Apostles' Creed, we're going to unpack this phrase, the forgiveness of sins. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bible, open your copy of God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible Word to Luke chapter 7, especially verses 36 to 50. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 864. 864. And while you're turning there, allow me to remind you about the authorship and the purpose of the Apostles' Creed, as well as this sermon series. In the earliest form, the Apostles' Creed emerged as a list of questions which candidates for baptism would be asked as they prepared to enter into the visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This question and answer format of the Apostles' Creed was used by a pastor in Rome named Hippolytus somewhere around 214-215 AD. The Creed was refined throughout the years, and likely reached its final form, the form that we confess it in today, sometime probably around the 7th century. The Apostles' Creed has been used by Christians for nearly 1,800 years to confess our faith in the triune God. To be sure, the Apostles' Creed was not so much written by Jesus' apostles as it was written to reflect the teaching of Jesus' apostles. The goal was to put into words a succinct summation of the Christian faith. So today, as we look at the words, the forgiveness of sins, what we're really going to do is examine the biblical underpinnings of that phrase and that line, the creed. In other words, I'm not trying to preach the creeds to you. I'm trying to preach the doctrine the Bible of the Bible that the creed is seeking to summarize. That's why we'll look at Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50, and other important passages which teach us about the forgiveness of sins. And here's what I want to attempt to convince you of this morning. Here's the main idea for this sermon. We are forgiven by God so that we can forgive like God. We are forgiven by God so that we can forgive like God. You'll find 
a sermon outline in the bulletin. It is super long. It's longer than the ones that I normally give you there in the bulletin. It contains a lot more of the outline that I normally give. Uh, if it helps you follow along, great. If it's a distraction, then just discard it, set it to the side, and focus on listening. In the main, as we seek to understand the Bible's teaching on the forgiveness of sins, we'll unpack this idea under the following headings. Number one, what is sin? We're going to be forgiven of sin. Well, what are we being forgiven of? What is sin? Number two, what is forgiveness? Number three, how can we be forgiven? And fourthly and finally, how can we forgive? Let's begin with our first point. What is sin? And as we begin to answer this question, we want to drop into this portion of Luke 7. And there's something you need to know about Luke and his gospel as a whole. Interestingly enough, the purpose of Luke's gospel is announced right there in the first chapter where Luke says that Jesus has come into the world, in the words of Luke chapter 1, verses 77 and 78, Jesus has come into the world to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Follow along now as we see this Luke working out this thesis statement here even in chapter 7. Luke 7, verses 36 to 50 now. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender who had two debtors, had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, One, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, in this scene we have Jesus, of course. We have this Pharisee Simon and this sinful woman. And it's not hard to see there is a clear contrast here, isn't there? There's a contrast between Simon, this Pharisee, this upstanding figure in the community, a super religious man who everyone admired for his pursuit of righteousness. And then there's this woman, on the other hand, 
who's described as a sinner. And her designation as being a woman of a city may imply that she was actually a prostitute. If nothing else, everyone knew her to be a great sinner. We know as much from Simon's statement there in verse 39. Then there's another contrast here in this scene that we need to take in. How much this woman loved Jesus and how little Simon loved Jesus. Jesus treasured this woman's tears, didn't he? They revealed to him just how much he was treasured in her heart. What about Simon? How did he reveal his love for Jesus? Jesus compares Simon's reception of Jesus to the woman's actions, doesn't he? In verses 44 to 46. Simon didn't even extend the, the kind of common courtesy of hospitality that was naturally afforded in that day and age. He didn't give Jesus a bowl of water to wash off his feet, nor did he kiss him on the cheek, which is somewhat analogous to a handshake in our culture. Contrast this to the woman who views Jesus as so precious that she will kiss over and over again his dirty feet. How are these two people so drastically different? The difference is not found in their wealth, their biological sex, or their estimation in the eyes of the community. The difference between these two people is rooted in their own understanding of their sinfulness and their need for forgiveness. This woman, this sinner, shows us what it means to come to terms with our sin, and what it means to come and find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe you don't feel your need for forgiveness like this woman. Maybe you feel more like Simon, slightly at a distance from Jesus. You may feel that way because you don't understand the nature of your sin. I'm convinced that this woman understood the nature of her sin. So what is sin? J.F. Packer helpfully defines sin like this. Sin is lawlessness in relation to God as lawgiver. Rebellion in relation to God as rightful ruler. Missing the mark in relation to God as our designer. Guilty in relation to God as judge. And unclean in relation to God as the Holy One. Sin is perversity touching each one of us everywhere and at every point of our lives. I think that's an excellent definition. The question is, does it faithfully represent the teaching of the Bible? And the answer is a resounding yes. We must always test the words of man against the words of God. Sin, according to the Bible, is transgressing God's law. So, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, the Apostle John defines sin as lawlessness. And historically, Christians have understood sin is transgressing God's law or failing to live up to God's law. Think of when Adam sinned in the garden. So in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, God gave him a law. God gave him a command. He commanded him not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam, he transgressed God's law. He broke the bounds of God's law, and therefore, sin. And here too, we need to see that sin is also voluntary and willful rebellion against God. God gave Adam a clear command. And Adam voluntarily and willfully rebelled. He rebelled against the author of his life, who has authority over his life. And think about this. He used the strength, the gifts, the intellect that God gave to him to rebel against God. There's no little hubris in sin. No little hubris in rejecting the author of your life who has authority over your life. Sin is also failing to live up to God's law. The New Testament has described sin in terms of missing the mark. It's like you shoot an arrow or falls short of the target or misses the target. So Paul in Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says that all 
have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't have time to linger here in this verse long, but consider again the, the universality of that claim from Paul. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means accepting Jesus, there is no one on this earth who has not sinned against God. Everyone has sinned against God. Sin is also uncleanness in the presence of the Holy God. That's why David, in Psalm 51, verse 2, which we sang earlier, right? Verse 2 says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's why the Lord in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16 says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. And sin, first and foremost, is principally against God. So David says in Psalm 51, verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned. That's not to say that we can't sin against other people. Sadly, we can and do. We know that. But what Psalm 51, verse 4 does clarify is that God is the primary target of sin. Even when we sin against another human being, God is the proxy. They are proxy for God. We're going through them to get to God to a certain degree. This is important for another reason. Uh, we're not talking about errors when we talk about sin. We're not talking about mistakes or slip-ups. We're talking about sin. Uh, think of the apologies that you hear these days from time to time coming off the, the lips of celebrities or politicians or public personalities. They, they say something like this. Uh, I, I'm so sorry that I hurt so-and-so. Uh, the way I acted is inconsistent with who I am. It's not who I am. And I'm disappointed that I violated my own core principles. Well, actually, it's exactly who you are. Right? Your sin coming out is revealing exactly who you are. Walking across the stage to slap someone on the face is revealing that you're an angry man. That's who you are. It's who we all are. It reveals that we want to murder people in our heart. Saying we violated our own internal principles. Well, that may be true if you've set up a law for yourself and your soul. But more importantly, you violated God's law. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. It's exactly who we are. If you want the comfort of forgiveness, and there is comfort in forgiveness, then you have to begin at confession. If you want comfort, you have to confess. Real confession, honest confession. Confession that without caveat or qualification says, I have sinned against God and man. We are sinners. We are unclean. We are transgressors, rebels, lawbreakers, and workers of iniquity. And the scriptures, they pile up all of these descriptions and definitions of sin in part to show us how deep our depravity goes and how much we need forgiveness. We need all of these descriptions because the truth is, sin is in the words of Ralph Vining. It attempts nothing less than the dethroning and ungodding of God. This is what sin is. It's what we've all done. This is part of the reason the woman of Luke 7 wept. Because she knew what sin was. Do you know what sin is? Do you know that it's a violation of God's law? Do you know that it's rebellion? That it's uncleanliness in God's sight? You know, another reason why I think the woman of Luke 7 wept was probably because she knew what sin deserved. The scripture teaches us that sin deserves unrestrained, unremitting, unending judgment of God. Consider Isaiah chapter 26, verse 21, where we read, For behold, the Lord is coming out from His place to punish 
the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Sin so arouses the anger of the Lord God that on the last day, the Lord Jesus will come out of heaven to fully and finally deal with sin. And Psalm 37 verse 38 teaches us that the judgment of God is certain. So the psalmist says, But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. God's judgment is certain. It is not an overreaction to sin. It is just punishment due to sin. So in Jeremiah 21 verse 14 we read this, I will punish you according to the fruit of your deeds. You know, some time ago I was sitting across the table from a friend and he asked me why hell had to be eternal. Why does sin have to face eternal self-conscious torment? And I said to him, because we have sinned against the infinite, eternal, and holy God. And because we have sinned against one who is infinite, eternal, and holy, the punishment therefore must be infinite, eternal, and holy. The punishment of sin fits the crime. And it is only Jesus who can rescue us from judgment because He bore, in His death on the cross, He bore the holy, infinite, eternal judgment and punishment of God for our sins. Do you see why the woman of Luke 7 wept? Probably with tears of joy. Now, take a look at the creed. Notice the line of the creed that we're trying to unpack here. Do we confess the forgiveness of sins singular or the forgiveness of sins, plural? The answer is yes. While one sin is certainly enough to condemn us to hell, and while we have a sin nature, and we can speak of it in a singular sense, the reality is, is that there are a multitude of sins in our lives. Look at Luke 7, verse 47 again. Remember that this is Jesus talking. He says to Simon, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Isn't this striking? Jesus, He does not downplay, diminish, or decrease the number of this woman's sins, the number she's guilty of. Jesus forgives her in full view of all of her sins, her many sins. Recognize this, when Jesus forgives sinners, He forgives us of all of our sins, past and present and future. Have you come to terms with the fact that over the course of your own life, over the course of your own life, you have committed a multitude of sins. Sins against the living God. Your sins are many. Have you come to terms with the fact that your sins have mounted up to the heavens, as the Scriptures say? Have you come to terms with the fact that your sins are so innumerable that you probably can't even remember them all? Have you come to terms with the fact that your sins deserve to be punished with a holy, eternal punishment, just punishment, because you have sinned against the holy eternal and infinite God. So do you see what this woman sees in Jesus Christ? She sees that Jesus is the person who has the power to pardon her of all of her sins. Do you see and believe that about Jesus? Jesus, He has the power to forgive. He says to this woman, your sins are forgiven. So what does that mean? This leads to our second question, our second point. What is Forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is the extension of a pardon from the offended party where the expectation of repayment or the threat of retribution is removed. Jesus, He gives us a glimpse into the nature of forgiveness with this parable here. You see there in verses 41 and 42, 
Read those verses again. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Forgiveness is like, it's analogous to canceling a debt. Uh, think about the Lord's Prayer for a moment. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, his version of the Lord's Prayer goes like this. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. That's Matthew 6.12. Luke, he actually makes uh, similarities or makes connections between an economic debt and a, a moral debt more explicit in his own version of the Lord's Prayer. So in Luke chapter 11, verse 4, we, we pray like this. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forget everyone who is indebted to us. This accords well with what we read here in Jesus' parable, doesn't it? Forgiveness is like canceling a debt. It's pardoning a transgression or transgressions. Now we need to notice a couple of things here about other aspects about Jesus' parable that teach us important lessons about forgiveness. Forgiveness, it's extended by the offended party. Note that in the parable, it's the money lender, or we could say the creditor, who cancels the debt. He is the offended party. He is the one who has been wronged, and he is the one who can forgive. It's not an outside third party who can cancel the debt. It's not the one who incurred the debt who can cancel the debt. It's the one to whom the debt is owed who can cancel the debt. It is the one who has been sinned against who can pardon. Forgiveness is extended by the offended party. And this reveals another aspect of forgiveness. When forgiveness is extended, the expectation of repayment of the debt is removed. And any consequences, any retribution for incurring the debt is removed. That's why in the parable Jesus tells here in Luke 7, both of the debtors actually love the money lender. Because he's removed the expectation of repayment. He removed the threat of retribution if they could not repay him. Like ending up in the debtor's prison. Now, of course, we, we know here, right, the one who had the larger debt, we're told, will love Jesus, or love the moneylender more. But their debts have both been canceled. They both love. And no wonder they love Him. I mean, it reminds us of what we read in Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. That's why the woman loved, or we could say joyfully feared, the Lord Jesus. Because he did not mark her iniquities. He did not hold them against her. Hold them over her head. No, forgiveness removes the expectation of repayment and retribution. And where forgiveness takes place, there is a joyful response of loving fear of God. Unforgiveness, it can crop up in our hearts when we refuse to pardon and release other people uh, from their sins or repayment from those who have sinned against us. And we might show that through bitterness or anger or the silent treatment, kind of the cold shoulder. All of those are kind of relational tactics of punishment, making another pay. Sometimes we won't forgive others until we are satisfied with exacting our own kind of personal punishment in that way. Our goal may be that we punish a fellow believer, a family member, a friend, so that they may see the error of their ways. Maybe that's the person, reason we're kind of justifying our punishment, our personal relational punishment. Uh, this is going to lead them to an apology, payment of an apology to us, and so acknowledge their wrongdoing. We forget that it is God's kindness that led us to repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. And what we're seeing here is that forgiveness, it doesn't wait, and it doesn't punish. 
It's the money lender who takes the initiative and forgives. It is actually the offended party who takes the initiative and forgives. And is that not what God has done with us? He's moved toward us, provided for us in Jesus Christ and forgiven us. Because of that, we love Him. We love because He first loved us. We should be aware, though, that there is something forgiveness cannot do. Forgiveness cannot remove the reality that there was an offense and that there was an offender. Forgiveness cannot rewrite or erase history and say there was no wrong done. Forgiveness doesn't say, you know, no debt was really incurred. If I can put it like this, forgiveness cannot unsin sin. Forgiveness cannot cancel corruption. Forgiveness does not cancel the immorality of the iniquity. Think of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where the grounds of forgiveness are accomplished. The cross loudly proclaims that sin has been committed and that sin deserves an eternal wrathful punishment and that God Himself satisfied the debt that we incurred. The debt still had to be dealt with. We'll think more about this in a minute, but certainly one thing the cross does say is that sin has been committed and its wages is death. Forgiveness does not condone or approve of sin. The cross certainly doesn't do that. Well, if that's forgiveness, if forgiveness is the extension of a pardon from the offended party, where the expectation of repayment or threat of retribution is removed, then how can we be forgiven? That's the third question we want to answer. Who can forgive sins? We're to think first vertically, on a vertical level, about God, and we'll think horizontally about forgiveness between uh, men and women. Who can forgive sins? God can forgive sins. In fact, God says that this is what He does. Uh, He forgives sins. So in Isaiah 43, verse 25, we read, I, I am He who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. We learn that Jesus, the Son of Man Himself, being fully God, also has authority to forgive sins. We see that here in Luke chapter 7, verse 48. We see it in Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, and in Mark chapter 2, verse 10, where he heals the paralytic man and announces that his sins are forgiven. Given all that we've considered about sin, God's holiness, His justice, I wonder if you see a dilemma here. I mean, perhaps you wonder, if God is just, if God is just, then how can He forgive sins? How can He pardon sinners if the just requirements of God's law need to be satisfied? I mean, think of verses like Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousand, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So wait a minute. If, if God forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, how is it at the same time He does not clear the guilty? How is it he refuses to clear the guilty? The answer, I think, is simple. God pardons sin by providing the payment for sin. God pardons sin by providing the payment for sin. God can forgive sin because he provides the payment for the debt that our iniquity has incurred. It is not as though the debt magically goes away. No, it is mercifully paid by God the Son. 
He personally satisfies the just requirements of the law through His own life, death, and resurrection. This is how God can be just and forgiving all at the same time. Think of Paul's declaration concerning the cross of Jesus Christ in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, where we read that in Christ God has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The cross of Jesus provides the payment and paves the way for pardon. When we say that we believe in the forgiveness of sins, this is most especially what we're talking about. That God forgives sinners. He releases us from the debt of our sins through remitting those sins and their punishment to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the implications of Jesus' cry from the cross. It is finished. Right? When Jesus utters those words in John chapter 19, verse 30, and dies, He is declaring that the wages of our sin has been paid in His death on the cross. Paid in full. And that the matter is settled. God's law is satisfied. His justice is satisfied. His wrath is satisfied. So what must we do to receive the forgiveness of our sin? Well, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 tells us with glorious clarity, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, so think about Simon here in Luke 7. He was almost as acting as though he didn't have any sins. Friend, don't pretend that you're not a sinner. You're not merely kidding yourself, but as the Apostle John says, you're deceiving yourself. And don't pretend that you can pay God back. You can't. Your debt is infinitely large. What you must do is confess that you're a sinner. You must confess your sin. Confess your sins believing that Jesus lived the righteous life that you have not lived. Confess that you are sinful while Jesus is sinless. Confess that your sins deserve to be punished by the eternal wrath of God. While believing that that's exactly what Jesus endured for you in His death on the cross. Confess that your sins have been paid in full. Believing that Jesus' death and resurrection from the grave signals that the just requirements of God's wrath and law have been satisfied. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Believe that Jesus paid for your pardon on the cross, in His death on the cross, in His resurrection from the grave. Come to Him, trust in Him, and believe upon Him. And if you want to know more about what it means to be forgiven by God through confessing your sins and trusting in Jesus, I'd love to talk to you more about that at the door after the service. Friend, Christian, let your forgiveness lead to love. That's what we see here in Luke 7, isn't it? Consider this woman. We should learn from her. She loved Jesus much because she had been forgiven much. The same is inevitably true for you. If you have experienced the forgiveness of your sins, your many sins, then you should love Jesus much. And let us notice this about Jesus. He will not refuse or reject your love. He doesn't do that with this woman here, does he? He doesn't refuse or reject your love. He doesn't go, oh, stop it, stop it, don't, don't do that. You know, he receives it and welcomes it. And you can be sure that just as Jesus did not turn this woman away, he will not turn you away. He will not refuse or reject you. She was a transgressor. She was a rebel. She missed the mark. She was unclean in God's sight. She had sinned against God. 
And yet Jesus did not turn away from her. and He will not turn away from you. Don't let anything keep you from coming to Jesus. Not even the fear of being rejected by Him. Because you won't. So in the words that we sang earlier, right? Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness that He requires is that you feel your need of Him. If you have many sins, you should feel your need of Him. So come to Him and be forgiven. And let the forgiveness of your sins lead to love. And let it lead you to forgive others too. This is what I want us to think about in our fourth and final point. How can we forgive? If you look on the insert in your bullets, you'll notice that this um, statement is situated under the belief statement of the Holy Spirit. You see the creed there? How it's roughly arranged in three sections by the persons of the triune Godhead and their work. You see this idea of the forgiveness of sins. It's connected to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps you think that, you know, that's kind of an odd placement. Perhaps you think to yourself, you know, I think that this might actually fit better in connection with the work of Jesus and His death and resurrection. And you're not wrong to puzzle over this. Uh, Yes, as I've just explained, we are able to be forgiven. Our debt's been paid by the Lord Jesus Christ in His death on the cross. We've been pardoned of our sin because of Jesus' work. But let me explain to you why I think it's in the creed here in this section and why it's appropriate, actually. Uh, in the first, if the first section speaks of God the Father as the author of creation, the second section contemplates the work of, son, of the Son and the accomplishment of redemption. And now the third section of the creed is addressing the application of our salvation, of the work of the Son applied to us. And that's especially the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit who brings us into the church and applies the benefits of Jesus to us. All that He's done for us and for our salvation. So in this section of the creed, there's both a vertical dimension as well as a horizontal dimension of the forgiveness of sins, not only from God, but also in the midst of our human relationships. And when you think about it, having been brought into the church, we've been brought into a company of Sinners. As a friend of mine likes to say, sinners going to sin. So when you get us together, that's inevitably going to happen in the life of the church. And so we're going to need to forgive one another. You know, some church historians actually uh, think that this phrase was included in the creed after a stringent period of persecution in the life of the church. So early in the life of the church, some Christians were threatened with persecution and death if either they didn't worship Caesar or hand over their copies of Scripture. And so sadly, some Christians caved under those threats, worshiping Caesar, denying that Jesus is the only true Lord, and they handed over their very valuable copies of the Scriptures, and some of those copies were burned. Eventually, the persecution subsided. Those who had left the church wanted to come back into the church. What were those believers who had remained faithful in the midst of that persecution? What were those believers who lost family members, who lost their homes, uh, endured physical beatings? What were those believers who had remained faithful during that time? What were they to think of those who wanted to come back into the church? Well, does the church believe in the forgiveness of sins or not? 
if God forgives sinners, then how can we as Christians not forgive as well? This has gotten to be one of the most challenging realities of the belief of, in the forgiveness of sins. That Jesus and the scriptures command us to forgive. I mean, Paul talks about this in Ephesians 4. Listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. He writes, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from among you, along with all malice. Paul is saying this to Christians in the church in Ephesus. He's saying, guys, you've got to stop this. Put it away. And what's the very next thing he says? If all these things have occurred in the life of the church, the very next thing Paul says in the very next verse is this. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. That means you have to forgive bitterness. You have to forgive wrath and anger and clamor and slander. You have to forgive the malice that's been done to you. That's what Paul says. Why do you think Paul says it? Because sinners are going to sin. And because the forgiven need to forgive. And if, lest you think this is just a problem in the church in Ephesus. This is a problem in the church at Colossae. So Paul in Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 and 13 writes this. He says... Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, not in a church, surely not in a church, there's complaints against fellow Christians. But yes, Paul says so. If one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, listen closely, so you also must forgive. Here's what Paul says to us. If you've been forgiven by God, then you must forgive like God. You need to pardon your brother or sister. You need to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiven and forgiving. You, you can't be unloving, unkind, angry, and bitter. You can't hold a grudge. You can't come up with relational tactics that punish them. You can't give your brother the cold shoulder. You can't purpose to exit another exit in the building just because you don't want to go by them and talk to them. No, you can't harbor unforgiveness in your heart. There's a biblical obligation to forgive. Unless you think Paul is crazy, what you need to know is that he only got this teaching from Jesus. He only got it from Jesus. So turn in your Bibles. We're going to turn to another section of our Bibles. Turn to Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 824, I believe. And let me try to fast forward through about half of the section. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 25, Peter asked Jesus the question that we all really want to ask Jesus. He asked, how many times do I have to forgive my brother if he sins against me? Like Peter, we want to know, like, okay, how much do I really have to put up with my brother and forgive him? Peter offers a number, and Jesus escalates the number. In fact, it's kind of a limitless ex escalation, really. There's no sense in keeping track of the number of times that your brother sins against you and you have to forgive him because whenever he repents you, you've got to forgive him this is how God deals with us and that becomes evident in the parable that Jesus tells he tells the parable of the wicked servant if you, if you read this parable later this afternoon then you'll see that the meaning is really pretty transparent the servant owed the master 10,000 talents that's an amount that in people in Jesus hearing would have found kind of incalculably high it would have blown their mind. The debt was infinitely great. There's no way they could have ever paid the master back. And in his grace and mercy, the master forgave him of his debt. That's what's taken place with us and God, right? The master 
absorbed the cost of the debt and paid it himself. And then in the second half of Jesus' parable, teaches us how to live in light of God's forgiveness of us. So verses 28 to 35. I want to read those verses now. Read those verses with me. And let's see if this forgiven servant, the one who's been forgiven of his infinitely high debt, if he's learned the lesson of forgiveness. Matthew 18, 28 to 35. But when that same servant, the one who's just been forgiven of his debt, went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And when they went and reported to their master all that had taken place, then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The master punishes the wicked servant for his lack of mercy toward those who are indebted to him. And what Jesus says about the punishment of the wicked servant reminds me of what we read in James chapter 2, verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Those who do not show mercy will not be shown mercy. Those who do not forgive will not be forgiven. Are you unwilling to forgive? Are you holding something against someone or holding something over someone because they've sinned against you? If you do not forgive God's children, it may be that you are not God's child. John Owen once said, Our forgiving of others will not procure forgiveness for ourselves, but our not forgiving others proves that we ourselves are not forgiven. What Jesus is saying to us in Matthew 18 is this, Those whom I have loved before the foundation of the world will also love those whom I have forgiven will also forgive. There is no such thing as a Christian, a person who has been forgiven, who does not also forgive. Forgive. Like the master, cancel the debt and absorb the cost. From the creed, from the scriptures especially, we learn that we are obligated to forgive those who are Christians. But what about those who are not Christians? Do I have to forgive them? In fact, you do. Jesus says yes. In Mark chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. What about those who do not repent? Maybe you're asking yourself, but, but do I have to forgive those who do not recognize their sin against me and do not repent? I think the answer is yes. I mean, think about it, the question in another way. Do the scriptures allow me to harbor unforgiveness in my heart? We cannot be committed to punishing others in our hearts while we wait for them to repent. Repentance is often necessary to reconciliation in a personal relationship, but it is not an obstacle to forgiveness. So, so what do you do when someone has sinned against you? You forgive. 
You pardon them like the master. You forgive them of the debt. You cancel it against them. You release that, that person from the expectation of repayment and the threat of retribution. You commit yourself not to dwell upon the wrong done. In other words, you don't bitterly stew over the sin. You commit yourself to not use the wrong against that person. That's seeking retribution. You commit yourself not to complain about the sin or the wrongdoing to others. You forgive because you believe in the forgiveness of sins. But is that all that you can or should do? No. When it comes to being sinned against, we must forgive. But we must either, we must also either confront the sin or cover over the sin. Complaining is not an option. Those are our two options. We either confront the sin or we cover over the sin. And in some instances, we will certainly need to confront sin. The sin may be so egregious that we need to confront another person who has sinned against us. And Jesus gives us a process for that in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, when that occurs in the life of the church. Jesus also gives us a process in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. And I would encourage you to read both passages later today. But what you'll learn from both passages is that you'll need to make sure that you're really dealing with sin. And you'll need to follow the process and the pattern that Jesus gives. Sometimes we are, are very easily offended at things that are actually less than sin. Awkwardness, uh, loquacity, speaking a lot. Uh, sometimes our perception about a comment or an action is inaccurate and wrong and we're kind of ratcheting things up well beyond uh, sin, what's actually happened. So when you're thinking about confronting another person for their sin, you've got to make sure that that's actually what you're confronting them over. You've got to clarify what the command of Scripture is that they've broken, what the principle of Scripture is they've broken, they violate. Make sure that when you're confronting another person, you're really dealing with sin. And what is more, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, Jesus tells us that when we're helping another person to see their sin, we need to make sure that we dealt with our own sin first. Uh, so Jesus tells us to take the log out of our eye, right? Before we try to take the speck out of our brother's eye. Before we try to help them with that little tiny speck. And Jesus says, but after that, you should help your brother. Jesus says, look, don't try to do sin surgery when you've got a two-by-four sticking out of your eye. It's going to just jam right into the other person. It's going to stand in the way. Take that out first, and then you can help him. And Jesus, I think, presumes that we should help them. We should help our friend or our brother and sister in Christ. And there are times where we're going to need to confront sin. But on balance, I do think that those times will be far fewer than when we simply need to cover over sin. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 tells us, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. That's a striking proverb. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 19.11 even suggests that there is glory in overlooking an offense. Do you want to be clothed with glory? Overlook offenses. Peter, echoing the Proverbs in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, says this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. But this is more than an echo of the Proverbs. It's an echo of Jesus' life and teaching. Jesus did not expose our sins in the sight of God. Rather, He covered them with His blood and with His love. That's what, sin, that's what love does. 
It covers over a multitude of sins. We forgive and we hide the faults and failings of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who have sinned against us. We absorb the payment and the punishment for them rather than exacting and extracting payment and punishment for the sins of others. How many sins should we cover over? Peter says a multitude. It can be literally translated a plethora. Many sins. An innumerable number of sins. Where did Peter get this idea from? We got it from Jesus when he asked, How many times must I forgive my brother? As one wise believer said, Where love is thin, faults are always thick. Where love is thin, faults are always thick. So ask yourself, Is your love thin? Think of the most difficult relationship that you have. Maybe it's in your workplace. Uh, Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's in this church. Now ask yourself this. Is it easy or hard for me to find faults with that person? If 15 faults just sprang into your mind, is it possible that your love is too thin? Is it possible that you've forgotten how much you've been forgiven by Jesus? Is it possible that you've forgotten how much you've been loved by Jesus? We should all fear an unwillingness to forgive. So don't let unforgiveness be found in your heart. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. What is more, love is eager to forgive because we know just how much we have been forgiven. We've been forgiven by God so that we may forgive like God. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. Remember Jesus' words about the sinful woman. In Luke chapter 7, verse 47, Jesus said this, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Love and forgiveness go hand in hand. As Mr. Spurgeon once said, Eyes that have wept over our own sin will always be most ready to weep over the sins of others. If you have judged yourselves with candor, you will not judge others with severity. You will be more ready to pity than to condemn. More anxious to hide a multitude of sins than to punish a single sinner. Do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? If you've been forgiven by God, then forgive like God. Let's pray for the grace to do that now. Let's pray together.